If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter 10, or John chapter 11, excuse me. We've done John chapter 10 already. You don't want to do that again. So we've, uh, we've seen that in chapters 1 through 10 so far, everything that has happened to this point, all that's been preceding, leading up to this point, has been for the unfolding of God's plan. And God's plan is, is laid out from the foundation of the world according to what Scripture tells us. So as we step into this text this morning, we have this framework in our mind that God is very jealous for His glory. It's a principle that's taught throughout Scripture. God's glory is something that's intrinsic to His nature, and He never shares it with anyone. We're told that throughout Scripture. God does not share His glory. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 29, He's called the Lord of glory. And in Psalm 24, He's called the King of glory. In Isaiah 57, He's called the High and Exalted One. Let me read you this from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42.8, this is God talking. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Jesus is going to amplify that for us this morning as we get into chapter 11 to help us understand what it means to give God glory. So as we move into this scene this morning with the resurrection of Lazarus, we have this in the back of our mind that God is jealous for His glory and is always looking for ways to be magnified by mankind. When the resurrection of Lazarus takes place, Jesus amplifies why it's taking place. So we're looking over the shoulder of a 90-year-old plus man, John, who's written this book for our benefit. He's looking back in time to when he was in his 20s. He personally walked with Jesus day by day for three years, got to be an eyewitness account to what we're going to see this morning. So we get detail upon detail for someone who was actually there in this setting. So move forward with me into John chapter 11 and verse 1. You'll see it up on the screen as well. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, Bethany is in southern Israel. Uh, where Jesus is at is in northern Israel at this point in time. As a matter of fact, if you're familiar with the geography, or if you're not, you probably know where Jerusalem is. Bethany only sits two miles outside of Jerusalem. Very, very close. You might call it a bedroom community to the capital city, Jerusalem being the capital city. And so many people settled out in Bethany if they didn't want to live in the hustle and bustle of the capital area. Uh, Right away, we're reminded that this is the older John writing this for us because he talks about the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. See that in the second part? It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. That's because he's the older John writing about something that happened not in the same chronological sequence as this resurrection. The resurrection of Lazarus happened first. The anointing happened later. So it's the older John looking back and then looking forward, trying to remind people of who this is. Why is he doing that? Well, they already have the book of Matthew, and they have the book of Mark, and they have the book of Luke. His writing is to add to it to help people understand some of these accounts a little more clearly. So he's taking them back in time. So apparently, Jesus is a really frequent guest of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's well-known in the community, in this area of Bethany. He's visited them quite a bit. 
and he spent a lot of time in their home. So this sickness must have been very, very serious because they know Jesus so well, they know that there's a bounty on his head. Remember how we ended chapter 10 last week? We saw that they were trying to kill Jesus in the temple, had stones in their hands ready to execute him. Jesus eluded their grasp. He's gone into northern Israel where John the Baptist was working. And now we find this family saying, hey, would you come back here to the area where they're trying to kill you? Because the situation apparently is incredibly serious. Death is imminent. And they're aware that there's a price on Jesus' head, but they seem confident that he's going to come, so they send this request by saying, the one whom you love is sick. The one whom you agape, the word love is agape, meaning a deep brotherly love. And do you notice that there's no request made present there? They're not saying, would you come? They're just laying it out there. He's sick. Why? They assume that because of his ability and because of his relationship, he's going to respond immediately. He's going to come. Go with me to verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So the relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha makes this really puzzling, doesn't it? He's sick, but I'm going to stay. So instead of rushing back, he stays two days longer. What's the difficulty here? When you look at this period of time that's unfolding, the time of waiting, I'm in a hurry, God. It's an emergency. Would you come? Come now. I've got a crisis. Can you identify with that emotion? Can you identify, God, I need you now. You notice one thing about the nature and character of our God is that he's never in a hurry. He's never, ever in a hurry. He's never, ever, never, ever, never, ever in a hurry because he always has a purpose. He always has a purpose for what he allows to unfold. What's the purpose here? Well, it's already been stated by Jesus. For the glory of God. There's a purpose going on here. So we understand that any crisis is a good crisis if God is magnified through it, if God is amplified, if God is glorified. And so Jesus is saying, this is a sickness that's going to bring glory to God. Uh, the delay is what's frustrating for us. Many of us in this church have prayed for Trina's healing. Uh, if you came in late, uh, Trina Knox is uh, in hospice this morning, and she's ending her, her battle on this earth because cancer is taking control. But we understand that even though she's entered into this place, she's at great peace because she has a relationship with God. But many of us have spent time praying for her, praying for her healing, asking God to intervene in this situation. This is what's frustrating to us is because of God's plans aren't always our plans, and it frustrates what we believe to be important. Because our nature is to want to avoid pain at all costs, especially when it's our pain, our own personal pain, let alone someone else that we love. However, if God answered every single prayer that you ever made for personal healing or for the healing of a friend or family member, the great difficulty is that, that we'd be bound to these bodies eternally. And this is not the body I want to have in eternity. I may not have said that when I was 22. 
But now that I'm 40 plus, I would say, I did say plus, okay? Now that I understand what it means to have a little bit more broken down body, I, I would say, I don't want this body for all eternity. I want the new body, the resurrected body, the body that can take on eternity, the one that we're promised is going to come. But if God just perpetually healed us every time we asked for it, we'd be bound to these mortal bodies, and we don't want that, and God doesn't want that for us. So a crisis like this type that we're looking at here this morning typically morphs over into a crisis of belief. Do I really believe that what I say I believe is really real? And that's what you're going to find this morning as we see Jesus encountering the sisters. He's going to challenge them about what they believe. Now, a running messenger leaving Bethany and heading on out to where Jesus is at in northern Israel is going to take an entire day to get there. One day because of the distance that he's gone to northern Israel. So we're going to allow for that journey for that individual to cross the Jordan River, go up into northern Israel, and deliver the message, hey, here's a handwritten message for the master. The one that he loves is sick, and it's an imminent death. So let's play out what the events might have looked like at this period of time, because you're going to see in just a minute that there were four days that this event transpired over. Let me show you on the screen how I think this unfolded, because most likely Lazarus was dead on day one. And I'll show you how you can know that. So day one, the messenger arrives and comes to Jesus. Day two, the messenger returns. He's got a whole other day journey to go back to southern Israel and deliver the message. Jesus stays, we're told, two days. So Jesus stays on day three, one more day. And on day four, Jesus makes the journey south into southern Israel and arrives on day four. So imagine the disciples listening to Jesus, talking with the messenger, and he tells the runner, return, give them this word. This sickness will not end in death. It's for the glory of God. But yet when the messenger arrives back on day two, Lazarus is dead. But Jesus just said, wait, it's for the glory of God. And he's delivering this message. What's his message going to convey to the sisters who are grieving? Their brother is already dead and in the tomb at this point. What the disciples hear next stuns them because Jesus is now ready to return and they argue with Jesus. Note to yourself, don't ever argue with God. You will lose, I guarantee it. Go with me to verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. That means southern Israel. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. So when it says the first part there, then after this, meaning waiting the two days, you discover the disciples are not exactly enthusiastic about Jesus' plan here. They're in fear for Jesus' life and their own. They're obviously very aware of what's going on. So it says, just now they're seeking to stone you? Are you going again? That's code for, are you crazy? Why would you go back there? This is a beautiful place to be. We saw at the end of chapter 10 last week, many people were coming to Christ as a result of him going into northern Israel. They were coming and believing in him. Why would we leave this area? It's been very productive. You yourself said, Lazarus is not going to die. You've healed others from a distance. Why not this one? 
So Jesus responds with this really cryptic comment, which is cryptic to us, but it was well known to them at this period of time. He who walks in the day, he does not stumble. What's he talking about there? He's talking about our obligation to perform what we know to do. The Romans divided their day into 12-hour blocks. And in the first century, because of the Roman influence in Israel, they thought the same way. So 12-hour blocks would be from 8 in the morning till 8 at night, like we have right now, you have daylight. And 8 at night till 8 in the morning, you have darkness. Jesus is referring to this time frame saying, I have a responsibility here because I see clearly, it's illuminated before me what I'm supposed to do, even though there's risk. And if I digress from God's purposes... I'll be walking in the darkness. I can't digress from what God wants me to do. Let me remind you that. 1 John 1.6 If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You can't walk in the darkness and do the work of God. So now Jesus pauses right at that moment to let the truth of what He just said sink in. How do I know that? Look with me at verse 11. This He said... And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Now Jesus is about to reveal his power, reaching beyond this world into the afterlife, the territory that belongs to God. They assume he's talking about sleep, meaning they think the severe sickness, the fever, has passed, and Lazarus is sleeping because he's resting comfortably. There's no longer a crisis. So verse 14, so Jesus then said to them, plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, that means the word twin, he had a twin brother, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. I love Thomas. (laughs) Now it's unmistakable right there. You've got indication that Jesus had omniscience. He's understanding something that no one else knows. He's in northern Israel. Lazarus is dead in southern Israel. There's no cell phones. How does Jesus know that? He's omniscient. There's no way for Jesus to have heard. And he says, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad. Now, from the disciples' viewpoint, that's a pretty strange contradiction in terms. How could you be glad? Why should he be glad he's not there to save Lazarus? And how in the world could Lazarus' death bring us any benefit? I'm sure that's what's going through their mind. The Thomas, he jumps right in and says, let's go die with him. Why is he saying that? Well, in the midst of the assignment, and this is an assignment from God he's giving out to his people saying, I've got a responsibility. I know what is very clear I'm supposed to do. Even in the midst of risk, I'm going to step in and do what God's called me to do. This has ignited these men. So while Jesus is going to wake up Lazarus, it awakens within them a spirit of adventure. Let's go die with him. Because they believe he's about to be seized and executed. And the same thing is going to happen to them. Now the disciples are about to experience something they never anticipated. Verse 17. So when Jesus came... He found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. In the tomb, four days. I want to explain that to you because that's a very important part of this story. 
In the Middle East, when an individual dies, they obviously still today, they try to bury them the very day that they die. But especially at this period of time, there was no embalming. They would take an individual and cover their body in spices, wrap them in a linen wrapping, and put them in the tomb immediately. Now this is what the first century Jews believed. They believed that a body, when dead, the soul remained for up to three days, hovering around, waiting for an opportunity to re-enter the body again. I'm not saying that's biblical. I'm saying that's what the first century Jews believed. They saw individuals who had gone into comas and be resuscitated. And so they developed this thinking, this doctrine over a period of time. And they firmly believed and taught to others. We especially find it in the rabbinic writings that a soul would hover around a dead body for a couple days waiting for an opportunity to re-enter. But by the third day, hope was gone. And by the fourth day, it's over. And the soul has departed and gone to the place of the dead. So we understand that Jesus has arrived here on the fourth day. The Jews recognize the only possibility that could bring life back at this situation would be a miracle that had never been heard of in the foundation since the foundation of the world, never in the history of the world. So with that in your mind in the background, we understand there's many Jews. They've come from the capital city. Jews meaning the rulers. So this family is well-connected with the capital city. Lazarus' funeral is a major event. Because they're a family of prominence in a small town, a popular family in a small town. They've got some degree of wealth, apparently, as you're going to discover next week. And they've got some influence. They've got connections. Now, we know that in the first century that men, when they went to the funeral, always went in one long procession, men only. Women went in another long procession, women only, totally separate lines. They escorted the body to the tomb. When they would arrive at the tomb, they would place the body on a shelf inside the tomb and roll the stone over and seal it shut. Women would go back to the household with the grieving family and they would stay with them for 30 days. Seven days of which in the very beginning were very, very intense mourning, grieving. It's not like an hour visitation like we have at a funeral these days long period of time in which they sit with the person who's grieving. So from a human viewpoint, they're there to console Mary and Martha. But from God's big picture viewpoint, they're there to witness the majesty of Jesus. You've got all the who's who of the capital city in Bethany with this family. And they're sitting with Mary and Martha. Now, there was a custom that was very specific to this period of time, still carried on by Jewish families today, in which the bereaved family members would sit in the middle of the house saying nothing. All the friends would gather around them saying nothing. And at various moments throughout the day, and we're talking hours, someone would begin weeping and wailing, and the whole room would erupt into wailing overwhelming sound, a miserable sound of death. This was a custom at this period of time. We must not forget, this is the brother. He's the wage earner in the family who has died. Apparently, mom and dad are out of the picture. So this, in many cases, would leave a family destitute for life. So the loss is intense. If you want to read about this later today, read the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and you see when Ruth became a widow and her daughter-in-laws became widows, 
It left them without nothing to survive on. So this is intense pain, and the feelings present in the house at this time are not just grieving for the loss of Lazarus, but for the future for these women. They have no future. Go with me to verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So Martha charges out to meet Jesus, and Mary stays home. And this is really in keeping with what we know about Martha and Mary. Martha is the doer. She's always getting things done. Mary is the one who stays back. She's the one that sat at the feet of Jesus just to listen to Jesus talk. So Martha is the hustling, bustling, get-it-down household person. And she charges out to see Jesus. If you had been here, Jesus, I sent you a letter. Didn't you get it? What's going on? She's got her big sister agenda. I have a big sister, so I know what that's like. Big sisters have agendas, especially firstborn big sisters. They have things they want to get done. So Martha reaches him first, and the distressing, consuming thought that's been on her mind for four days just comes bursting out. Lord, why weren't you here? My brother would not have died. Now, I understand she's heartbroken. She's grieving, and I don't see this as rebuking Jesus. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. But clearly, this is what's going on. There is no sense of hope. It's the fourth day. There's nothing that can be done. Now, Martha and Mary and the disciples at this point certainly know that Jesus has resurrected people from the dead by this point. Jairus' daughter, you remember that? Resurrected her from the dead. The young man who is being brought out of the village called Nain. He's in his coffin, literally, and Jesus walks up and raises him from the dead while he's in his coffin. What's the difference there? That was the first day. That was the day they actually died. This setting here is the fourth day. So the issue of four days really comes into play in this story. But in their mind, Jesus, you should have been there to prevent this. You could have stopped it. Martha has no sense of hope. Jesus arrives on the scene, and now he's about to deliver a promise. Go with me to verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Look at verse 23. If you haven't circled that in your Bible, you might want to. That is the king of creation saying there is a resurrection church. The God who created you is saying there is a resurrection. He's saying to her, there is a resurrection in which your brother will rise again. Now she's thinking last day's resurrection. She would have been shocked if she really understood at that moment what Jesus is referring to. Resurrection was a much debated issue in the first century. It still is today among Jewish people. But especially at this period of time, there was a group known as the Sadducees and another group of rulers known as the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. It was not something that they bought into. They believed that when you're dead, it's over and done, finish. But the Pharisees, much larger ruling party, the, the group who identified with the working class and they really understood the Old Testament teachings, they taught that there is a resurrection. And so Mary obviously understands the Pharisee teaching, and she says, I know there's going to be a resurrection in the last day. He'll rise again in the future. So she's thinking last days. She's in for a big surprise. 
Now, it's ironic that Mary believes that Jesus is from God, God has the power to raise the dead in the last days, but doesn't think that he can do it right then. So obviously there's an expression of lack of faith here. Her brother is dead. He's entered the place known as Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, the place of the dead. He's not beyond the reach of the power of God, though. Go with me to verse 25. Jesus' response, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So the resurrection is not a future event. It's Jesus. I am the resurrection. Yes, there is a future event as well. He's completely done this right over her head. She did not understand what he's talking about. Jesus is unknown to her. The great ego, I am. We've seen it in our study of the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. The future resurrection is totally impossible without Jesus. There's no hope without him. Now, the end of physical life is the end for your body. No question about it. Your body ceases to operate. But at death, the eternal portion of you, your soul, is immediately, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Scripture tells us. But your body begins to decay And that's what we see going on here. They're very aware. His body's begun to decay. His soul has gone to the place of the dead. Now he's challenging Martha to move beyond her thinking, very limited thinking, to complete faith in him. This is what he finishes by saying. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Look at the next part. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, Martha's thinking, end of the age, last days of planet Earth. But time is no barrier for one who created time. So he created time. He can control it. He says in verse 25, he who believes will live even if he dies, talking about physical death, because I will raise him again on the last day. So your eternal life cannot be extinguished just because your physical life ends That's a very clear teaching of Scripture. As a result, everyone who trusts in Jesus can say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? That's why Paul wrote what he did, because you have life in Christ. That's why he ends it by saying, Do you believe this? He's challenging her. He's not asking her to believe he's about to raise his brother. Do you know that? He's not saying, do you believe that I'm about to raise your brother at this moment? He's calling her to personally believe in who he is. Believe what? That he is the source of resurrection life. Martha, I'm the nuclear reactor. I'm the source of power. It comes from me. I produce the energy. I am the resurrection and the life. You're looking at the source of eternal life. What's he doing here? He's doing what you should do every time you encounter someone who has lost a family member who's gone to be with Jesus. Refocus them. Refocus them on what the priority is. In the midst of her grief, Jesus is bringing her right back on point to help her understand this isn't the end. This is only the beginning. Look at her response, verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, 
I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That's a great response to Jesus' question. Do you believe this? I own it. I absolutely own it. This is a lot like what Peter said when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter's response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Her response, I want you to see it up on the screen because I didn't put it in your notes. She's saying this very specifically. She's emphatic about this. He is the Christ, meaning the Messiah. He is the Son of God. She includes that all in her sentence. He is the one who comes into the world. Why did she use that phrase? Even he who comes into the world. You remember the period of time, perhaps, if you looked at it, when John the Baptist was about to be beheaded? He was on trial. Herod had decided to take his head and cut it off. John was in his last days of life, and he was beginning to have doubts. So he sent, John the Baptist sent his disciples off to find Jesus, and they had a question for Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? That's the same phrase that's used here, the one who is to come into this world. They understood that the culmination of all the Old Testament promises is found in Jesus. And that's why he says, you are the one who is to come into the world, the one that's promised from God. Now, we freeze frame. We put a pause right there on that story. And remember, there's another story going on. It's Mary. Mary's still in the house. Martha's been talking with Jesus all this time. Mary's still sitting with the mourners. They're all gathered around her. They have the black clothing on. They're weeping. She's just in her place. The house is filled with gloom and despair. And Martha has a reaction to what she's just heard from Jesus. Go with me to verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So Mary's still at home. Jesus evidently sent Martha to go find her because she said, the master's calling for you. And she comes up to her sister and says, Mary, don't tell anybody. Jesus is outside. Can you come quickly? Don't let them know. Well, she's so overwhelmed with her joy, she jumps up and she departs so fast, it catches the attention of everyone. They immediately see what's going and they assume she's doing what we do. We drive by cemeteries and we see people sitting next to tombstones. They're weeping at the grave. They assume she's going to weep at the grave. It was customary at that time. It's still customary today. But again, God orchestrates the circumstances to fit his purposes because all these people who are from the capital city, all her friends and family who have watched her, now decide they're going to follow her to the tomb. So now we have no longer a private setting. We have a public setting. Do not miss John's note there. The Jews followed her. Very specifically, this is a scene that's intense, very intense sorrow, genuine pain. You notice the differences between Mary and Martha just subtly. Mary's conversation with Jesus is, Martha's conversation is private. Mary's conversation is going to be public. Martha's engaged in theological debate. Mary's going to fall right at his feet. Go with me to verse 32. 
Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. Now Mary's weeping, and the Jews are weeping. We should understand what's going on with this huge crowd that are weeping around Jesus. Very specific word that's used here, the word clio. Now in this context, they're wailing out loud. There's loud screaming, huge crowd gathered around. And Jesus see this in verse 33, we're told, as a result, he's deeply moved, but perhaps not in the way that you've always thought when you've read this story before. I want you to see what's going on here in the way that the Greek language is written. First of all, this word deeply moved is embrimaiomai. I know it's a long word. You'll never use it in your lifetime, but it's very important to understand the background that's going on here. Read the association with it. To snort with anger. This is a phrase that was always used of a stallion when it was being broken, a wild horse that had been captured. And when the horse was rearing up on its hind legs, someone was trying to break it, its nostrils would flare. That's embrimaiomai. It's hardly ever used in the Bible at all. And it's used here in this setting where Jesus is in a cemetery with all these people wailing around him. And he's filled with a sense of outrage. What's the other word that's used here? I've got four Greek words I wanted you to see this morning. Clio is one, embrimaiomai is another. Here's the next one. The word troubled is terasso, to be agitated. Now think of your washing machine at home. You have an agitator in the center. What does it do? It stirs up the water. So Jesus is roiling inside. What's going on here? Why is this strong reaction emphasizing the really intense reaction of Jesus? There's another time that this word was used. I told you it wasn't used too much, embrimaiomai. It was used when the Magi came looking for the one who was born to be king. They came to King Herod at the time of Jesus' birth. They enter into Jerusalem and they say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Herod's reaction was what? Rage. Embrimaiomai. Same word that's used here. Now, in response to that, Jesus says, where have you laid him? And then slash Jesus wept. Now, we just saw that weeping associated with the people who had gathered together is a word clio, meaning loud wailing. But that's not the word that's used here for Jesus. When it says, Jesus wept, it's the word dakruo, to shed tears, as in silent streaming flow coming down your face. So from deep within, it's bursting up out of Jesus. There's no sound made. It's just a grieving. Here's part of the character and the nature of your God. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that before. The God who knows us very well has known loss. You've known loss. He's known loss. The one who spoke the world into existence is crying in a cemetery. The response of Jesus right here is another brushstroke for our portrait series. Fully God, fully man. 
encapsulated within one. God who is fully encapsulated within a man. And we see this true humanity coming out here, this open show of emotion. Up to this point, he's assured Martha. He's challenged her faith. But when Mary appears and she's crushed and falls at his feet and all this weeping and wailing going around, the friends are grief-stricken. And Jesus is moved with deep emotion. And as he walks to the tomb, his emotions are no longer in control and he can't suppress them any longer. And they're overwhelming to the degree that he begins this weeping, just streaming down. Now, why was there anger? Because these tears emerge for a different reason. See, what we need to understand, church, is Jesus has this situation well in hand. He's already said to the disciples, this sickness is not to end in death, it's for the glory of God. Martha, do you not know that your brother will be raised again? See, he's not afraid of death. He understands specifically what's going on here as people are overwhelmed with death and grieving, and Jesus is angry about something very specific here. When I was a kid growing up, I loved that little phrase when I was in church that just said Jesus wept because it was one verse I could manage memorizing. You can go to the Bible drills and say, I know a verse, I've learned one this week, teacher. John 11, whatever that one is, Jesus wept. One of several short verses in the Bible. But this really short verse is rich with meaning. And here's what you need to understand. Jesus' anger and Jesus' sense of rage is because death is not natural. It's not part of what God intended for us. It's part of the world now, the fallen world, but it's not what the God of creation intended. Death is an enemy. It is the enemy of life. It's the result of sin. Ultimately, it's going to be destroyed by God. So Jesus, thoroughly human, but his tears do not reflect the same hopeless despair these people have. He's surrounded by people who are in despair. But Jesus' tears surge from within because he's the God of creation. He was there in the garden. He spoke the world into existence. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything that was created was created through him. He is the creator seeing a fallen world and the aspect of what sin did is bring death with it. It's the ultimate reminder of what Lucifer did in the garden. And ultimately, Lucifer is going to be thrown into the lake of fire along with death. So why was Jesus angry? He's angry at the domination of Satan who brought death through sin. Let me show you a couple verses to help you with that. First one, Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, death is always associated with Satan. Satan introduced it. Death is the enemy. Do you know that Paul wrote of death being the last great enemy to be defeated in the last days? It'll be the last one to be destroyed. So the king of glory is looking at what's around him and is filled with rage because of the destruction that death has brought. Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Look how long Jesus must reign. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last great enemy. To deal with the last enemy requires the Lord of life. And so the Lord of life is standing in front of a cemetery with a tomb. And he's very aware of what's going on around him. That death has brought pain and suffering. Go with me to verse 37. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? Do you notice what you've been looking at over the last couple of weeks is still so fresh in their mind? It had happened four months earlier, but it's still so vivid that Jesus brought eyesight to one who was born blind. They use the analogy when they're in the cemetery. So as a result, they've got this lack of faith. Verse 37 ends with the mourners questioning Jesus' power. Jesus is still under the same emotional tension. That sense of agitation is still there. Look with me at verse 38. So Jesus again being deeply moved. That's the word terasso again. Agitate. Jesus again being deeply moved within came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Remove the stone was a sense of uh, risking defilement because in rabbinic tradition, the rabbi said, you don't touch dead things or you are automatically ceremoniously defiled. So people went out of their way to stay away from dead things. Jesus has just told them to remove the stone from a tomb where a man's been dead four days. Let's look at an image of the tomb up on the screen so you can see a, a first century tomb. This is very similar to what's in the Middle East at this period of time with a, a large round stone outside. It was typically carved out of stone. This stone that was rolled in front of it would have been about five foot in diameter, about 12 inches thick, maybe 10 inches thick, really heavy to push. It took more than one individual to do this. Inside the cave, it was a leveled floor. They dug shelves in the wall and they would lay the body on the shelf and roll the stone back over to seal it. You ever been around a dead animal after it's been dead four days? Maybe driving down the highway in July and you see one of those bloated animals on the side of the road. I mean, it stinks, doesn't it? The King James Version actually says this, Lord, he stinketh. Okay? It, there's a stench. Four days without a shower is bad enough. Four days not breathing. Four days rotting in the Middle East. No wonder she's got this response. Martha's in a state of panic. She's Martha Stewart. She wants everything in control. This is not a good thing. This is not a beautiful thing. She wants things orderly. There's nothing orderly about a dead body. So the crowd's watching and listening. You've got the capital city people gathered around. Mary's weeping at his feet. Martha's got her hand over her nose saying, no, this is not the way we want our brother to be remembered. Don't do this. 
Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now he's talking to Martha. But likely, he's speaking to the disciples at the same time. Because what he just said to the disciples earlier, a couple days earlier, this sickness is for what? It's for the glory of God. That God's Son might be glorified through it. So let's notice that statement in the midst of that verse. If you believe, you will see. If you believe, you will see. So for the sisters who are in grief standing around Jesus, for the disciples who are filled with fear and bewilderment, they think they're about to be killed, and the spectators who are gathered around, all the crowd from the capital city, Jesus is saying to anyone who seeks him, I'm going to call for faith first and sight later. If you will believe, then you will see. Now Jesus knows that the time has arrived for the glory of God to be revealed. He's going to reach across the valley of the shadow of death and pull one back from the chains of Satan, Satan who controls death. Jesus is about to snatch one back from this realm of the dead. Go with me to verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. So we reach a point of breathlessness. Everybody's watching. The stone's been removed. The king of life stands before an open grave, and with the stone taken away, now the tension really mounts. Nothing appears at the door. There's no sign of life. What's going on? What's he going to do next? What does Jesus do? He prays. Who's he praying for? He's not praying for himself. Father, I knew that you always hear me. You always hear me. He's not praying for Lazarus. Who's he doing it for? So that they may believe. So that this crowd gathered around who will be witnesses to this inconceivable action. That's who he's praying for. Go with me to verse 43. This is where it begins to end. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Kaurugadzo. Now, he says it much louder than what I just did. The word is actually shout. Jesus shouted with full lungs. Why cry out loud? Why shout that so loud? Obviously, his voice immediately captures the attention of everyone who's gathered there. Did he have to shout so loud so that Lazarus, way on the other side of the valley of shadow of death, Lazarus, can you hear me? I don't think the king of creation needed to do that. Perhaps. It's more likely, though, that it was intended for the crowd so that everyone around would know exactly what he's doing. There's no question who's in command now. Who's taking control of this situation? And let me promise you this. One day, church, you are going to hear this exact same shout. That's what we're told according to Scripture. You're going to hear His voice. Look with me on the screen, John 5, 28. An hour is coming in which all those who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. 
those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So this one who holds the keys to the gates of death, according to Revelation 1.18, at his command, the grave yields its prisoner. Hades is unlocked by the one who spoke galaxies into existence. I want to give you the literal Greek words that Jesus spoke when he called Lazarus forth. It's not going to appear on the screen. This is what he said. Lazarus, here, outside, now. That's the power of your God. Literally calling forth the dead. And as a result, stumbling blindly forward. He's wrapped up with all this linen. This mummy appears at the entrance of the tomb. You can feel the Mediterranean sunlight on his face. He's smiling, I'm sure, but no one can see it because he's got cloths wrapped around his head. Everybody's in shock and awe. He shuffles his way to the entrance of the tomb, and they're so shocked, Jesus has to actually tell them to unleash him, to remove the wrappings. Look with me at verse 44. The man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There's a preview of coming attractions. That's the power of your God on display. That he had to actually ask the bystanders to get involved and unwrap him tells me that they were overwhelmed. Some of them probably ran the opposite direction. I probably would have too. Can you imagine the sense of touch, a sense of smell, the sense of sight as Jesus tells you to walk over and touch the walking mummy? You're going to unwrap him? He doesn't smell dead. He's moving. They unwrap his face. He's smiling. What's the result of this? Verse 45, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Oh, there's the understatement of the century. Yeah, I would think so. Verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. You see here the full result of Satan's power. It might surprise you that I said that at that point in time. You see here the full result of Satan's power. Death is the result of the power of Satan. By bringing sin, he brought death. For the wages of sin is death. It's the pinnacle of Satan's power. It's the best he has. He brought his A game and God beat him. That's all he's got. He brought it at the beginning. He brought it by deceit. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. And he brought death. So if the wages of sin is death, that means the fall of Adam dragged down every member of the human race when he went and fell himself. For this reason, everyone born into this world, every single human who has ever lived except Jesus, has entered this world alienated from life with God. And that's where light breaks in. That's where the king of glory shines. Why? Because man is helpless in the face of death. We have no power over it. Lazarus couldn't do one thing for himself. He's in the grave. He's left the land of the living. He can't resurrect himself. Mary and Martha, as much as they love him, can't do a thing. His friends, all his political connections from the capital city, 
They could stand outside the grave and yell till they're blue in the face. No man's voice is able to penetrate the depths of the tomb. But your God can. Your God is the one who calls back from the dead. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. He's the source of power. And he reminds us in 1 Thessalonians that you will hear his voice one day. This is where I'm going to end. Look with me on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. That's an incredible promise, church. Do you notice that Jesus only had to speak? He speaks at your resurrection. He speaks at the rapture of the church. He spoke at the resurrection of Lazarus. He spoke the worlds into existence. Why not use the same voice to speak eternal life for us? So at the sound of his voice, can you imagine the secret questions that were asked of Lazarus over the next couple weeks and months. What was it like? What did you see? What was your experience? Can you imagine sitting with a dead man and talking with him? As a matter of fact, this had such a huge impact on the known world at that time that when we see the crucifixion unfolding, it's because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the rulers, the rabbis all came together and they saw Lazarus walking themselves and they said, we got to kill him. We're going to kill this guy that's been resurrected from the dead and Jesus too because the whole world was turning to Jesus as a result of what happened here. This sets up the crucifixion. Who is this one that commands life into existence? That's what the psalm writer told us, the king of glory, who shares his glory with no one. The Lord, strong and mighty, is his name. Waiting for that amen. Amen. So, if you don't believe this, and you're still working through this, I'm going to pray for you right now. If you believe this, you got a great promise. You got the promise from the king of glory himself. One day, you will know what it is to have an eternal body, to have an eternal life. If you're not there yet, I'm just going to pray for you. So let's pray together as a church body. Ask God to seal this for us. Father, we've gathered here together this morning, and as is typical of reading through your word, many times we're left with more questions than we are answers. And Father, I ask that your spirit would continue to be at work in our life this week as we wrestle through the things that we've heard. God, especially for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, I ask that you would firmly root this in their mind, that this passage would not return void, but according to your promise, it would be used for the expansion of your kingdom. So God, I ask that you would root it in us so deeply and seal it in our minds, the truth of this passage, that we would be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And that when individuals ask us why we have such joy and confidence in the face of death, that we can remind them that we know the end of the story. Father, for individuals who I know your heart is compassionate towards, who are wrestling through this and wondering if this stuff is really real, I ask that you would be near to them today and throughout this week as they wrestle through these questions. 
God caused them to have a sense of conviction to want to get to the answer to, to try and discover what this means to have a life with you. Father, once again as we close, we pray for our sister Trina and for her family and what they're enduring today. And we ask God that you'd be especially near to them at this point where death approaches. But Father, I ask that you comfort them because you are the God of all comfort. Remind them of your peace and of the promise of everlasting life. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hope you have a great week, church.